This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Uh, If you've brought a Bible with you, you can open that um, to the book of Exodus, which is second book in the Bible. We've been working our way through this for a significant amount of time now. I don't know how many sermons we've preached on this. Um, I, I can tell you this. Well, with, with a mild amount of certainty, I believe next week will be the final sermon in the book of Exodus. Hold your applause. That would be offensive. Um, I, I believe I'm going to preach just one final sermon next Sunday. Um, but, you know, sometimes when Wednesday rolls around and you know, it could turn into two, so don't hold me to the fire on that. But I believe next week will be our um, final sermon in the in the book of Exodus. But this week we're in Exodus chapter 32, um, very famous event, uh, famous in, as, as, as far as, you know, incidents in the Bible go. Uh, b- before I read it, let me just kind of catch you up where we're at in the book and then connect it to our life briefly. Uh the people of Israel, God's people, um, are out um, on, a, on an adventure, to say the least, traveling from uh, their former um, zip code of Egypt, where they were under oppression under Pharaoh um, for 400 years. So God's people had been in Egypt for generations. They've been recently delivered out of that um, bondage and now brought into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Uh, God is giving them the extended uh, tour of the wilderness, uh, and I've said this throughout the series, and here's, here's why I think God does this, is because I think he's more interested in who we are becoming as people than where we are going. He's more interested in who we become in the journey uh, than where the, the final destination of the journey is. And so God is, you know, he's shaping his people in the wilderness, and they've been at this mountain. It's called Mount Sinai. And at the mountain, um, God delivers uh, what we commonly call the Ten Commandments. And so God has given his people a law and said, if you're going to be in relationship with me, this is what your life will look like. And in light of giving those commandments, um, God said, uh, and if you're going to be in relationship with me, you need to be really close to me. And so we're going to build this thing called the tabernacle uh, so that my presence can come and be inside of that and you can have access to me. And so God, through the book of Exodus, has been delivering laws and, and a place for God's people to be close with him. And in the middle of all that, so God's giving all these specific details about the construction of the tabernacle, and then they're going to build it. But right in the middle of all that is chapter 32. And chapter 32 is there intentionally, and here's why. And here's the connection I want to make briefly. Um, and I'm about to like make comments on the mask mandate, and so this is just, it's not a political statement, or it's not anything so just everybody settle down right now but um a couple whatever a few months ago whenever the mask mandate was kind of lifted because the vaccination level was high and things kind of you know we we, 
people weren't wearing masks as much. Um, well, that, as you all know, got changed recently a couple of weeks ago. And what I've noticed, because I'm a professional observer of humanity, is what I've noticed is when, when, when people are going into the stores now more often than it, than it used to be, kind of when the mask mandate was on, is people are you, – you, you'll get up to the door, and I'm, I'm doing this frequently too, and you're like, oh, no forgot my mask, right? Like I'm seeing it almost anytime I go in everywhere. They're like, oh, I got to, I got to, I forgot it. I got to go back to my car. I can't go inside till I have my mask. And I, it's just, you know, funny observation. I've just noticed that that has happened more frequently. And uh, for chapter 32, th- this is what's happening. Um, God is saying, before you go inside with me, before you get access to a really deep, personal, intimate, close relationship with me, first you have to check what's going on inside with you. You, you can't go in until you know what's in here. You can't go inside to have deep fellowship with me until you know what's going on inside here. And that's what chapter 32 is. Chapter 32 is open heart surgery. It is exposing the worst of us before we get to close relationship with God. Let me read uh, the chapter. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's narrative, so it should flow relatively easy on your ears. So if you're following along, please do that. If not, you can just listen along. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of, the, out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven 
And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. This is God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we, we believe that you've given us uh, the words that are recorded in the Bible uh, for our good. Lord, we believe that they teach us much about ourselves and about you. And so, Lord, I pray now that our time exploring this event in the history of your people uh, would do two things, that it would expose us for who we really are and that it would expose you for who you really are. Uh, Lord, we, we want to know you and ourselves. And so would you please do that uh, through the preaching of your word today? We pray these things in Christ's name. Many of you know that one of my recreational activities is smoking meat. 
uh, with wood and charcoal. I was given a great birthday gift for my brothers, uh, a book called A Meat Manifesto. What a great title, right? A Meat Manifesto. Uh, it's by a guy named Aaron Franklin. Uh, Aaron Franklin owns a rather popular barbecue joint in Austin, Texas called Franklin Barbecue. And the, the book, it's a great book. It's not just a cookbook. I mean, it's a manifesto. And he's sharing his life. And uh, it just... I'm only a little a little bit into it, kind of been reading it on Saturday afternoons or whatever. And in the in the introduction section, uh, he's 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 co-writing with another guy who does. I think he's probably authoring a lot of it. But I love the way the introduction it just flowed through like his early stages of you know experiencing barbecue. And you would think you know somebody who has um, a great barbecue restaurant where people line up and they line up early in the morning for hours uh, until the until the meat is sold out on a daily basis. You would think a guy like that has like all this you know grand um, early experience with barbecuing, but it's just super. He's like a salt of the earth kind of guy, just a really grounded guy. And in this opening introduction section he's you know he's saying you know if you're reading a book like this you must want to know like you know the sage advice for producing great barbecue right and so he's like trying to strum up like you know there's obviously so much technique and so much things involved with with slow cooking meat but he says like if i were to give one piece of sage advice you know to the to the beginner of smoking barbecue meat it would be this you have to think like smoke. And, uh, you know, super insightful. Like, you have to think like smoke. You have, to, you have to know how smoke works in order to produce great smoked meat. And, uh, you know, I just thought it was really, you know, insightful and helpful and memorable. And, you know, for, for all of us here... Um, I think, you know, if you're if you're spending your Sunday morning gathered in in a corporate Christian worship service, you've got some degree of investment um, in wanting to explore a deeper spirituality. I'll just in a very vague way. So wherever you're at on the spectrum of spirituality, be, I mean, some of you might be here just out of obligation from an invite from a friend or family member, but but I would I'd I'd largely assess you've got some sort of invested um, interest in being a deeply spiritual person. And if I were to give like some sage advice, you know, a la Aaron Franklin, and think like smoke, if you want a deeper spirituality. You need to think like sin. And by that, I mean you must begin to understand the complexities and the dynamics of how sin works in your life and in your world. And there's perhaps no greater chapter, maybe that's an overstatement, but chapter 32 in the book of Exodus is a great place for you to begin thinking like sin. Because here's, you know, this is the teaching of the Bible. Is that running through every single human being, with the exception of one person, 
running through every single person who has ever existed in the history of mankind is the thing called sin. The condition of humanity is that there is this thing, this condition inside of all of us that clouds our view of ourselves and of our maker. And what we see in Exodus chapter 32 is that sin has clouded you know, God's people from seeing God clearly. And it would be really easy for us, you know, 21st century, modern, Western Americans to just read these events in our Bibles and say like, oh, oh, you foolish people, right? Oh, how could you? turn away from the God who had, has done all these miraculous things, right? It would, it would be easy for us to, you know, in terms of what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery, which, which means we would look down kind of the scope of time and just say, oh, those archaic, beastly people, and, you know, we would just be snobbish toward them. When in reality, what's happening here is we see that... Um, that this is us. That we are the Israelites of old. And so our hearts are all inclined um, to reimagine God in our own image. It's been said, I don't even know who to give credit for, but it's been said that you know God created man in his image and then humanity returned the favor. Exodus chapter 32 is us returning the favor to God that we would make God in our own image. Here's how I want to handle the, the it's, a, it's a lengthy narrative passage, um, but there's three scenes here. And so this is kind of how the, the Hebrew narrative flows. And so it's helpful for us to look at it in the way that the, the original hearers would have heard it. There's three scenes, okay? It starts at the bottom of the mountain. It goes back up to the top of the mountain, and then it comes back to the to the bottom of the mountain. So it's it's down, up, down is kind of the way that the Hebrew reads. So we're going to look first at our rebellion, and then we're going to look at the Lord's wrath, and then we're going to come back and look at the mediator's response. So our rebellion, the Lord's wrath, the mediator's uh, response, for those of you that are note takers. Um, first six verses, you look at our rebellion. The way my uh, version of, of the English Bible that I use, which is English Standard Version, translates it, it says this, that the people said to Aaron, up, make us gods. So the question that's at stake here in Exodus chapter 32 is which commandment are the Israelites breaking? Is it the first commandment, the first commandment which says you shall have no other gods before me? Or is it the second commandment that says you shall not make any images of God? And there's all kinds of ink, you know, spilled on which is which. And it really comes down to, you know, how you translate one word, which is Elohim, whether you translate it as a singular God or plural gods. And I will spare you uh, the boring uh, scholarship uh, details. And I will say this. I'm not entirely sure which commandment they're breaking. <laughs> Because the question is, are they replacing God with false gods? Or are they reimagining God? And 
you know, if, you know, if I had to gun to my head, like make a choice, I would say, I think they're not replacing God. I actually think they're reimagining God. Because what Aaron said was, listen, you know, we're going to, let's make this calf. We need a representation of God. Our God has, is gone. Our guide is missing. And we need, we need him present with us. And so what he says is, let's form this calf, and then we'll hold a feast to Yahweh. It's, you know, capital L-O-R-D in our English Bibles. So that leads me to believe, that's one reason that I believe that I think, I don't think they're replacing the Lord. I think they're reimagining him. I think they're shaping and forming him into what they need him to be in the moment. Um, and so they fashion the cow. Uh, they, they make offerings and sacrifices. And then they eat, drink, and play. And so, you know, where does this come from? Well, it comes from, from hearts that have rebellion running through them. And, you know, you look, you look at the event and you say, okay, well, where is the rebellion coming from? Your immediate answer would be, well, they're impatient. They're impatient because, you know, Moses has been up on the top of the mountain for what we know to be at least about 40 days. You know, he'll be up there 40 days total before he comes back down. So for 40 days, God's people have been just kind of waiting around, not sure what they're supposed to be doing. You know, God, even though they could look up and see all the fire and thunder and cloud, you know, he's seemingly gone. So they've lost their guide. They've lost their God. And they're just, they're, there's this growing sense of impatience in their life. But like underneath, like if you lift up, you know, the hood of the engine of impatience in our life, you know, we, we find one of two things. And this is where I think it kind of gets deeper to what's going on in a rebellious heart. The, the first thing you find is like when you're being impatient with your life, it's usually coming from one of two places. It's either coming from a, a place of demand or a place of desire. So when you're, when, you're, when you're being impatient with a demanding expectation of what your life ought to be, um, that's like where re- the, you know, the, the blood of rebellion starts really flowing. Like why don't we have children yet? You know, God, we're doing everything right. You know, there's seemingly no things that are displeasing. Like, why? If I get another baby shower invite, like, you know, crush me. There's this expectation. Or like, why, you know, why, am, why do I continually get passed over for promotion? Why am I overlooked? Why can't I find meaningful work? Does anybody not see me? There's like, there's these, these demands for lack of a better term, and expectations of what our life ought to be. But you, you kind of go further down the road of impatience, um, and you bump up against desire. And this is actually what I think the Lord is interested in in your life. This is what he's interested in with the Israelites. Is there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with being impatient particularly if your impatience comes from desire. And our relationship with desire is incredibly complicated because desire, desire makes you vulnerable. 
Because now instead of saying, God, why can't we have children? You're saying, God, we long to have children and yet we cannot. And instead of demanding like, God, why can't I have meaningful work? Why am I so underemployed? Why are we always just strapping to make ends meet? Like, what must I do? Like, instead it sounds like, Lord, I want to be valued. Lord, I want meaning. Lord, I want to be seen. And when you bump up against those places in your life, those places of, of really pain and hurt and vulnerability, um, that's actually where, you know, subversively where shame comes in. And, and what I think is happening to the Israelites is the, the narrative of shame over their existence has, has subversely come into their hearts. Because here's, you know, here's what impatience on the surface can sound like. Lord, where are you at? What are you doing here? You know, we're waiting on you. But really what's happened is saying, God, why have you abandoned us? Why did you leave? Why do we not feel or see or sense your presence anymore? What is wrong with me? And so shame begins this this cycle of doubting and questioning and outright replacing and reimagining God in your life. So if you bump up against that, like you begin to feel that, you, you really have two options, and the Israelites chose the latter. You know, option one is to stay there, like in the discomfort of desire and unmet longings. And option two is to reimagine God. Option two is to refashion him in a way um, that makes him a little bit more manageable. Because what the Israelites opted for, and, and this is what we often opt for, is to, to refashion a God who's a little bit more manageable and maybe we can manipulate a little bit. And by manageable and manipulative, here's what I mean. Like when, when God becomes more manageable, um, it's like you know the, the demands on your life, they're not all that serious. Like, sure, God, you know, God wants part of you. He wants you to, you know, be a little bit involved in some things. But, like, it's, it's not all that invasive. Like, you know, do church on Sundays. You know, maybe pop into a Bible study once in a while or, you know, read, read some good article. Like, just kind of just like this dabbling in, you know, spirituality. Like, that, that makes God manageable. But really what Yahweh is saying is like, if you're going to belong to me, I have to have your whole life. The whole thing's mine. There's just no managing me. And then on the other side of that is like we try to manipulate God. And, and when you manipulate God, what you're doing is you're, you're really you're entering into a transactional relationship with him. And that's what the Israelites are probably more interested in. Like, God, you gave us these laws. We want to do them so that you'll keep loving us. It's a very transactional way of relating to God. And God's saying, listen, I cannot, I cannot be your God and you cannot be my people if you think that's how we relate to each other. So the rebellious streak comes inside of us 
you know, through manipulation, through management, through bumping into the desires and the unmet longings inside of our hearts. That's what's going on with the Israelites. And we rationalize our rebellion all the time. <laughs> we rationalize our rebellion with either cynicism, which says, God can't really be all that interested in me. He's not really interested in those deep, detailed affairs of my life. It can't be. Or we, we relate to God with suspicion. And we just say, like, there's no way he could love someone like me. He must have left me. It's been 40 days. I'm going to have to figure this thing out. He must have left me. So that's what our rebellion sounds like. Well, let's, let's go up the mountain and let's look at Yahweh's um, wrath. It's the, it's the language of the passage. So you, you, see, you see the Lord respond to Moses, the mediator. He says, go down for your people. <laughs> now that is a shift in language. You know, these are, these are God's people. God has made it very clear throughout Exodus. These are my people. I will be their God. They will be my people. But there's a shift here in God's language saying, listen, these people have rebelled. They've turned aside quickly. And they're stiff-necked. So the, the turning aside quickly language is, it's the language of infidelity. They've been unfaithful to God. You know, God showed them, these, this is the way you should live. They turned aside quickly from the way they should live, and they went their own way, and they're a stiff-necked people. That's an agricultural animal term. Uh, you know, Animals needed a yoke on them to guide them where they needed to go. And God's saying, listen, these people, they don't want my yoke on them. They don't want to be burdened uh, with life with me. So they're stiff-necked. They, they, can't be, uh, they can't be directed. So the question is, you know, the Lord very clearly communicates his wrath. He says, let me be Moses. Let me just consume them with my wrath and I'll still make a great nation out of you. We'll just start over. And um, so a couple questions come to my mind. First is, is the wrath warranted? Like, is it, is it justified for God to, to consume them? And, and my answer is, is yes, but let me give you some qualifier to that before I just make blanket statements. The first thing is you, you have to understand what God's wrath is and what God's wrath is not. It's, it's not this irrational, capricious, flying off the handle, um, just, you know, it's not human anger. It's not the anger you and I are prone to, to display. You know, God's wrath is always judicial in nature, and it's always fair. You know, the scriptures make it very clear that God is light and there is no darkness in him. And so when we talk about this category, you know, his wrath comes from a place of purity. It comes from a place of righteousness. It comes from a place of justice. It comes from a place of judiciousness that God always does what's right. So it's not irrational. Um, and here's, you know, here's you know the backdrop of it like you, we just god's people us included will never understand the magnificence and the extravagance of his love without understanding his wrath 
Like without understanding what rebellion against the creator um, rightly brings, we'll never understand the extravagance of mercy. So God says, you know, let's, let's start over, Moses. And Moses appeals. What does he appeal to? Did you catch that when I read it? He doesn't appeal. He doesn't try to defend or justify or say, hey, Lord, they were just confused and, you know, we just got a little impatient. No, Moses appeals to two things. He appeals to God's reputation and he appeals to God's promise. He says, listen, Egypt, it's going gonna, it's gonna to smear your name through the mud, God. If you smoke your people out in the wilderness, Egypt's going to look and say, like, what kind of God is this? And, and on top of that, you've made a promise, God. You said that these are going to be your people. These are the ones that you brought out of Egypt. These are the ones you're going to bring into the promised land. You've made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and, and Jacob. And you cannot do it this way, God. And what does God do? He relents. Uh, the language there is he changed his mind. And I, you know, I don't know how to theologically uh, you know, gymnastic my way around that other than I believe that through the work of the mediator, God changed his mind. I don't think that God ha- was just throwing out empty threats. Um, I, I think God relented because the mediator interceded. And... And so Moses appeals to God's reputation and his promise, and God, God relents from pouring out his wrath. And then, and then he sends Moses down. He says, all right, take the tablets down. And so here's the mediator's response. He's got the two stone tablets, which presumably, you know, Joshua was with him, but presumably Moses could carry them both because at one point he had them in his hands. And these were the copies of the, of the commandments. So uh, there's two copies because there were two people in this contract. It was God and his people. So one copy is for God, one copy is for his people. And, uh, you know, the, the commands are written on, the, on, these cab, uh, on these tablets with God's finger. Moses trots them down. You know, he's probably, you know, he's excited to show off the new tablets uh, to the people and he gets down there, and on their way down, they hear singing, right? They hear dancing. They hear all this excitement and joy, and Moses, his anger burns hot. He throws the, the, the tablets down. They break. He chastises the people. Um, Moses, is a, he's a hot mess. He's looking at the people saying, like, what have you done? And here's, here's kind of how I want to draw this together is this, you know, this is in our Bibles um, to bring us to, to Jesus Christ. Um, Moses was a good mediator, but Jesus Christ is a better one. You know, Moses interceded for God's people in some pretty significant, meaningful ways, uh, but Jesus Christ uh, is so much better. You know, Moses interceded in a way that was temporary and partial. And Jesus intercedes for his people in a way that is eternal and complete. Listen, here's, here's how it works. Moses is the one who's on the top of the mountain with God in his presence. And he goes down to the people. Jesus Christ is the one who's the eternally begotten son of the living God. 
He has been with God. He is God. He is forever. He always has been, always will be. He was with God, and he came down to his people. Moses comes down with uh, uh, stone tablets with the commands written on them. Jesus Christ has the commands of God written on his heart. He's engraved with God's commandments inside of him. Uh, Moses, as the mediator, he he comes down and he sees God's people uh, with the calf around and dancing and singing. Jesus Christ comes down and he sees idolaters everywhere. He sees people that have forsaken God. They have left and abandoned him. And he comes down and instead of like Moses, Moses comes down and what does he do? He uh, throws the tablets down. He takes the golden calf, and I don't have time to explain this, and I don't even understand it, but he takes the golden calf, he grinds it up, gets it down into powder, puts it into the water, makes the people drink it. In other words, they have to consume their own sinfulness. It comes inside of them. But what does Jesus do? He comes, and he says uh, the, the, the cup of wrath is handed to him. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? So Jesus comes, and God hands him the foaming cup of God's hot white wrath, And he puts all of the sins of God's people in the cup. And what does Jesus do? Does he make his people drink it? No, he doesn't. He says, God, if you would have mercy, if there's any other way, just like Moses requested mercy, it's like, if you can relent from this disaster of me drinking the cup, please let it be so. And God the Father told Jesus the Son, no. He said, no, there's no other way. If mercy is going to be eternal, if grace is going to be extended to the world, then you must drink the cup. And so what did Jesus do? He drank the cup, right? He took all of God's wrath. He drank it down to the dregs. And, um, and then, uh, uh, G- uh, do you remember Moses at the end of the um, narrative? He says, listen, now I'm going to go back up on the mountain so I can make atonement for you. What does Jesus Christ do? He takes that cup of wrath, he climbs up Calvary's hill, he gets onto a cross where he experiences the full weight and wrath of God's judgment and crushing wrath. He drinks the cup all the way to the bottom. Why? So anyone who would come to him would not have to drink it. He took the cup for them. And so Moses, he makes the request, he says, listen, if if, if, you'll just, if, if you're going to blot people out of your book, just blot me out too. Like, I, God, I cannot, I don't want to be the meteor anymore. And Jesus, he did the same thing. He was willingly blotted out of God's book. J- Jesus Christ was left. He, t- he went to the cross and he was blotted out of the book of life for God's people. He took the incurring wrath that should have come to people who rebelliously replace and reimagine God all the time. And then, so as, you know, and if you caught the end of the narrative here, uh, you know, the plague still came. There were still consequences. You know, full forgiveness wasn't given. This was temporary and partial. But here's the thing, and and this is for anyone. If you're here today and you're, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're bored with the God of Christianity or you you think he's really one-dimensional or you just see, you don't see how he could be relevant to your life. Here's, Here's the difference. Um, the plague still came on God's people in in the Old Testament. But because Jesus Christ not only lived the life you couldn't live, he died the death that you should have died, but then he bodily rose from death to life. And here's what that declaration is. The plague will never fall on you. Judgment will never come to the person 
who looks to Christ in faith. And that might sound like, okay, that's great. Like, now we can just go on living our lives. But here's, here's the, the difference. And, and this is what I want to close with. Is this is the most liberating news for anyone who will embrace it. And here's why it's liberating. And let me go back to the Meat Manifesto. Because, I mean, is there a better way to close you know, Labor Day weekend than the Meat Manifesto? In the, in the introduction of that book, uh, Aaron Franklin talks about his first several smokes of a brisket. And if you know anything about smoking meat, brisket's the hardest meat. It's very finicky. You have to tend to it all day. And he, and he talks about how he would you know, buy the cheapest meat, 99 cents a pound, just the choice cut. And he would you know, take it to the house, and he would smoke it all day, and then he'd have his friends come over and eat it. And he, and he talked about his uh, first two briskets and how terrible they were. He said they were just terrible briskets. He know they were flavorless, they were dry, and his friends, you know, they drank, you know, PBRs and, and ate the meat and were happy about it or whatever. But the way he wrote about it, he was so liberated to fail. And that's the thing you need to know about Christianity, is that if you want just the deepest, most intimate, most personal relationship with the most extravagant, majestic God. If, if you want to get, you want insider access, here's what you need. You need freedom to fail. Like, like just, you, you just, that has to wash over you. Because you will exhaust yourself if you're trying to get insider access on your own terms. And, and we are, you know, we are not quick or very conscious about, you know, identifying the ways we do this. But, you know, I think what the Israelites did, and I think what you're doing in a lot of ways is you're either making God manageable or you're trying to manipulate him with your religion. And here's what the God of the Bible is saying today, and I'll close with this. If you want insider access to me, there's only one way. And his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came to rescue idolaters who were looking anywhere but him to get insider access. And so whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or whether you're here today and you're exploring whether Christianity is something that you would be interested in, the same is true of everyone. The only way to get inside is by knowing what's inside of you, namely an idolatrous heart, and then giving that to the only one who can remove it from you. And his name is Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is liberating. Jesus Christ came to remove the sin that so wickedly smoke screens who God really is and who you really are. Would you consider it an invitation today to whether for the first time or for the thousandth time to look upon that one in faith? Let's pray together. Father, we, at least I, readily admit that I am an idolater, that I frequently replace you 
and reimagine you. Lord, it is much more comfortable for me to just make you controllable, to minimize you, to keep you at a distance, or to replace you with things that give me brief moments of satisfaction, like success or approval of people or entertainment. Lord, we thank you that you that you would be so inclined to give us your own son. That he came down from the mountain of God to rescue us from ourselves. And I pray especially for this for this small group of people that are that are hearing these words today. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who hears your voice calling them home that they would come. that you would remove the resistance to come inside so that you would make their your home with them, that you would dine with them. Well, we were made for intimacy with you and all of us are so resistant to that. Would you break that down? Would you help us to feel the desires and the unmet longings of our heart that make us want to quickly abandon you because we think you've abandoned us. Lord, there is no one else like you. Lord, would you do that work in us for your own glory, for our good, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. 